Welcome back. Jordana Green here with my co-host, Kate Kelly for Seat Speak Minnesota, the language of executives brought to you by PNC Bank and WCCO Radio. I want to tell you about the Center for Economic Inclusion. This is a really exciting organization, and we're so excited to speak with its founder today. It's an organization that's committed to strengthening and disrupting, when necessary, economic systems and influence market forces to create shared prosperity and, of course, advance an inclusive economy. Shared prosperity. Think about that, right? That's the goal. Shared prosperity. They are the nation's first organization exclusively dedicated to advancing economic inclusion across all sectors and in major metropolitan areas. And Kate, I cannot wait to talk with Tawana today and hear more about it. I feel the same, Jordana. This is just wonderful. And welcome, Tawana. We're thrilled to have you with us today. So with us today is CEO and founder of the Center for Economic Inclusion, Tawana Black. She is leading a team of people who offer groundbreaking consulting products and services to move businesses and local and regional governments from diversity and inclusion programs to triple bottom line results that are good for employees, employers, and communities. Welcome, Tawana. Thank you so much for the invitation. Hi, Tawana. And I, I love that, that triple bottom line. Of course, the banker in me perks up on that one, so that's terrific. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, Tawana, Tell us more about the Center for Economic Inclusion and why did you found it? Well, thanks a lot, first, to both of you for welcoming me on today's um, conversation. Well, the center is a bit of a combination of um, both an action tank and a think tank um, and a collaboration tank. We kind of put all of those things all in one place in order to help both policymakers, government leaders, and employers, particularly in the private sector, learn and practice new skills that can be then deployed to help us build an economy that works for everyone. And from the seat that we sit in, we see the data about racial inequities and disparities in our community, and not just that data, but also the data that shows us that our failure to be able to address these racial disparities over not just the last few years, but a number of generations is also impacting our broader economy. And we believe that most people don't wake up wanting it to be that way, but also don't necessarily wake up with the skills and knowledge to be able to do real meaningful things about it. And so our work is about helping business leaders and policymakers do just that and do so in a way that produces sustainable long-term results that we can count on over and over for our entire economy and for everyone within it. And to that second question about why I created the center, Several years ago, having moved to the Twin Cities um, about 11 years ago, I've worked in just about every sector in a number of different domains, but I was blessed to lead work in another community where the private sector was very centrally focused and engaged in community economic development and able to bring its full market strength to bear in addressing community economic challenges. And coming to the Twin Cities and particularly as our community wrestled with racial and economic division following Jamar Clark's killing several years ago, I saw an opportunity to help business leaders in a different way and an opportunity to educate and center our black, indigenous, Latinx and Asian communities and communities of color in our economic future. And so the center was created because we saw a void as we studied not only this community, but cities across the country and a real opportunity to bring people together in new ways. 
Tawana, you mentioned policies before, and I know in my interviews at WCCO, uh, you know, systemic racism always goes back to some sort of racist policy that then just became part of our ether that we, ex we accepted. So can you share with us some actions or inactions and policies that create these unequal outcomes in our region? Absolutely. I appreciate that, Jordana, and that, that kind of reference to history, right? In our history, we mm -hmm. know as a country that racist policies have been such a part of our fabric that they're just woven in. And to your point, we tend to not even look at them. If we look at housing, for instance, many people know that the GI Bill was created to give advantage to white soldiers who were returning back into our communities in order to allow some to purchase homes and unfortunately to not allow African-American soldiers to purchase homes. So we look at wealth creation, we often look at poverty today and assume, well, it must just be that people make bad choices. They want to be poor. Well, actually, no, our government played a significant role in ensuring that white individuals were able to move forward and build wealth through the creation and purchase of homes and that particularly African-Americans Jewish families were not able to build that wealth and pass that wealth down generationally in the same way. What some people may not recognize is that Minnesota, right here in our own community, we still had racial covenants up until less than five years ago that Crazy. on the books restricted some people, people who look like me, from purchasing homes in certain neighborhoods. Now you could look at that and say, oh, well, surely that didn't happen. I actually know people who have had their parents age in this community and then go to sell a home and then get that notice that says, oh, wait a minute, there's something on the deed here that says you can't sell this home to these people. We gotta do some paperwork to actually get that removed from this home. Those types of policies, whether related to housing covenants, policies like redlining that restricted who could have loans in some places, we continue to see the remnants of those policies, even when overturned, continue to show up, not just in our psyche, but also in additional policies and practices that get instilled, not only in the public sector and government, but also in the private sector. Simple rules that fuel unequal outcomes are things like, if we think about procurement, for instance, your supply chain that you might have inside your business. From time to time, we see an opportunity to constrict the number of people who might compete for an RFP. So our legal departments review our RFPs, our requests for proposals and say, let's add some language here to make it a little tighter. At the time, that's not a racist action, if you will. But if we start to look at our economy and say, well, what businesses exist in what lanes in our economy, who could compete for those contracts? And what's our opportunity to bring them into our supply chain? If we did an audit and said, well, wait a minute, groups of people from these different races are not applying at the same rate, or they're not making it through the funnel, we'd go back and see, well, oh, at some point we added some rules back in the day, not maybe to be racist, but because we were trying to solve for one thing, but it's had racist implications in our supply chain. So that requires us to be hyper-vigilant about understanding not just the intent, but the impact of the policies and practices that we have in place inside our businesses, our nonprofits like mine, our foundations, and our government agencies that are getting in the way of the intentions we do have for inclusion. Wow, right? I have to just interject that I'm so grateful, Tuana, that your leadership and your timing and you know, that you've created this center. There's so much going mm -hmm. on and this is complex, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, can I ask, does it come as a surprise to many that Minnesota ranks among the nation's worst in disparity gaps? And in your work, what does that data tell us about our region? 
That's a great question, Kate. I think that it, it does and it has, and yet I think some are starting to wrestle with it in different ways. If I reflect back to moving here, I've been a, a trailing spouse for my entire uh, marriage, more than 20 years, and uh, moving city to city. If you all have traveled, you uh, are accustomed to getting that corporate relocation booklet and packet and, and someone telling you about the community you're going to move to. And when I prepared to move to Minneapolis-St. Paul, the relocation packet included stories from Diversity Inc., a national publication talking about the Twin Cities struggling to attract and retain professionals of color. That was more than 11 wow. years ago. The same stories that we're reading about right now, CEOs and executives saying, well, there's something we just can't quite figure out. We've got these disparities. And just about a year and a half later, the study from Economic Policy Institute came out that said, uh-oh, Minnesota, you've got wage gaps that persist from people who have a high school diploma to those who have a doctorate degree. And I think that opened our eyes as Minnesotans to say, whoa, this isn't only about an achievement gap, an opportunity gap. This isn't just about people getting training because if we're paying black people and white people differently, even when they have a PhD, even when they have advanced credentials and experience, we're choosing to pay them differently for the same job. That's about racism. That's about our culture in Minnesota. And so I think people, many people were shocked by that because this is a land of, of people who have been known for being pretty progressive. And we sometimes assume that progressive also means racially inclusive. They're not mutually exclusive, but they're also not the same. And so it has caused Minnesotans to really have to wrestle with and reckon with what does that mean? And, and does it mean um, something that is a, a personal judgment or is this a call to action for us each to take an assessment of our daily actions? Because it takes action every day to change it, to say, what do we want our community to look like in the next 10 years and 20 and 50 years? And what are we willing to do every day to change that? Well, gosh, Joanna, I hope we were more welcoming than the packet when you finally moved here with your husband. And I guess you were here 11 years, so <laughs> hopefully we got nicer. Absolutely. <laughs> um, one, of, one of the staggering statistics on your website, the center references the wage gap. The wage gap in our metro closed by, get this, only 1%. That's $540 between 2008 and 2018. That's 10 years, and the wage gap only closed 1% for diverse people. Now, with the work that you do with decision and policymakers, do you see other people that want to help you close that gap? Do you see motivation to even make it better? I do. I do. We have been calling out that statistic since the center opened really helping people begin to change the both awakening of our knowledge about where the emphasis of our work has to be, but also to help us understand that there is action we can take to close many gaps. Because if you address income, you can not only address kind of the workplace, but you begin to stabilize families. So when we look at housing and homelessness in our communities, that's related to this wage gap, right? When we look at education and what people are able to provide for their children in terms of stability, that's related to wage inequities and what's happening inside our businesses. So we are seeing many employers, the more we've raised this data, and this comes right from the Brookings Institution. It's studied every year. We'll have a new statistic in about 30 days to tell us if we've made progress since last year. We've seen leaders start to awaken to that. We've seen more corporate executives saying, okay, Tawana, I'm gonna do the, the wage equity data analysis inside my business. I'm gonna understand whether or not there are people in my business who are not being paid equitably compared to their white peers. 
And then I'm going to set a path forward in partnership with the center to start to address that, right? It, just in the same way that we've done with gender equity, many companies in our community made a major pledge toward addressing gender pay equity several years ago. And I believe almost all of them have overcome those hurdles they had about five years ago. So we know that when we get serious about an issue based on the data, we can overcome it. Race, unfortunately, has been that big elephant in the room that too many yeah. have been afraid to talk about. But when we can relate it to the data, be market responsive and connected to our economy and our values simultaneously, I believe it's possible and we're seeing leaders step up to do that. Tawana, you know, the murder of George Floyd challenged many to reckon with the racial injustice and inequities. What are your thoughts on the reckoning that is happening now and how, how do we foster accountability for real change for our future generations? You know, George Floyd's murder was so not only painful and life-changing for many of us um, and hopefully everyone in our community to not only wake up to the level of, of racism and, and problem, within our ranks of, of police, but also just within our community, right? To start to reckon with what are all of the things that go behind that story? What are all the things that go behind the things that led up to that day and that moment? And what is the responsibility that each one of us have to do? I think right now the reckoning is challenging us to be sure that when we use that word, we really mean it. Our organization is doing a series called Reckoning to Rise Together because we found many of our partners and clients were saying, yeah, we're reckoning with this. And when I'd say, what does that mean to you? Well, we're having a conversation and we'd encourage those leaders around us, those people around us to go deeper with reckoning, to really have some of the heart struggles, the talks that we have historically considered to be unsafe in the workplace or, or unpolitically correct in the workplace. We have to do that. We have to have those conversations if we really want to reckon, to understand that the things that find we find to be um, so unsavory and so atrocious about the police department, many of those same things exist inside our businesses every day. Um, my colleague at Brookings and I wrote an article right after George Floyd's murder about policy violence to help us understand that there are policies inside our businesses and our government agencies that exhaust the breath of black Americans every day that suck out our intelligence, that seek to quiet our voices, that seek to tell us to be someone different than who we were created to be in order to show up in white spaces and comply rather than to allow the brilliance of diversity and inclusion to really foster business growth. So we have to take the mission statements that have been created around inclusion and really bring them to life but that requires valuing every voice at the same level. In the same way that we're talking about the police departments needing to value physical life, we have to in our businesses and our government agencies value intellectual life, right? Value human life in the same way. And that's a lot to handle, right? It sounds right, it sounds simple. We're all nice people. It's not, or we would be past this, right? So it requires true reckoning, conversations about what does it feel like when it doesn't happen? Let's really write it out and talk about that and and be graceful enough to come back to the table when we have those hard conversations and know there has to be grace for you and I uh, in those spaces to get it wrong because we won't get it right just because we have one good training. But I'm seeing that in this space. And I think I love the part of your question about future generations. When we work with cities, whether it's here in the, in the Twin Cities or in Duluth or St. Cloud or in New Haven, Connecticut, we're seeing more and more, I would say, particularly in the last year, People who are saying, you know what, Tawana, I was willing to, to compromise for myself, but not for my kids. 
not for my grandkids. I want a different community. And so we have to do this work much differently than we were doing it because my kids can't keep going to school in a place where people don't value them for who they are um, or beside children who aren't valued for who they are. I'm willing to fight differently. And I'm seeing that even here in my own community. Um, and I hope we see more of that. Well, that really at home. Yeah, there are two phrases there, um, Tawana and Jordana, that I just love is, you know, really going deeper with reckoning and then being graceful enough to come back to the table. I mean, it's a yeah. process and yeah. it takes daily work. I just love that. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Tawana, you're really doing the heavy lifting here. I mean, I'm so grateful that we're talking about your, your, your organization right now, but beyond business leaders and beyond policymakers, you know, you're working at a high level. You spoke a little bit about unjustness in everyday life, but if you're just a regular person like me, anybody who's listening to this podcast, it does feel overwhelming to work against a system that has all of these racial disparities. What's your advice to just regular everyday person like me to either help or kind of feel better about this whole situation, help make change? Yeah, I love that question too. You all have the best array of questions. I think one of the things that has been um, a great reckoning for me personally over the last year is that even though I do this work, right, every day, all day long with my team uh, in places and spaces of influence, uh, at the end of the day, we are all just people um, and people trying to make it and raise our families and, and enjoy our spaces. And in COVID, we really have all been forced into some interesting situations and dynamics. And we carry a lot of weight that often the rest of the world doesn't see, right? They see the image we put out, but they don't see the inside stuff. But we have a chance to go deeper than that and, and sometimes take off the hat and the title and just reckon with one another. So I encourage people to do that, to talk about this work, the work of not the center's work necessarily or the work of institutions, but the work of building an anti-racist community. Talk about it with your neighbors. Talk about it with your children. Talk about it with the people you worship with. Talk about it with the people you socialize with. Get on Zooms and talk about it. Talk about it with your family. Watch YouTube videos together. Watch our series on, on our YouTube page um, together and talk about it. And when you disagree, stay on the call and keep talking through the disagreement, right? There's power in us disagreeing. Even if it's in your family, there's so much power in that. And I, I tell you this summer, um, this past summer, I had moved to a new community just um, a few months before COVID drove us all inside. And my husband said, one of our neighbors who you haven't met really wants to talk to you. Like she's heard about your work and she wants to talk to you. And I am uh, not much of an outdoors person anyway. In the summer, I got horrible allergies to everything native to Minnesota, so I'm not out a lot. And I was drowning in work, responding to everything happening in our community after George Floyd's murder. But he was like, you really need to talk to this woman. And so I did, and I tell you, I've struck them the closest friendship with her but she inspired me in my work to say that anti-racism has to be a lot like people in recovery waking up every day to say, what am I going to do today? So that when I go to bed tonight, I'm still in recovery, right? How am I going to be hypervigilant? Not enough to just say, I'm not racist, but how do we move to the point of saying I'm anti-racist? And for me, that can't just be my eight to five. That also has to be my thoughts and my ideals. When I'm watching a TV show, do things run through my head? that don't really align with the values that I preach all day long about inclusion and belonging. And if so, I have to challenge those. And I have to say, I often use the phrase in my trainings, where'd you get that programming? Who told you that? 
Where did you learn that about power? Where did you learn that about people? Where did I learn that about white people? Where did I learn that about Asian people? And am I willing to challenge that if I don't really have my own experiences, my own knowledge to ground that? so that we do build those cross and multiracial experiences that help us truly foster inclusion. Inclusion is a verb, it requires us taking action and belonging is the result of that verb that when we get to a place where everybody can truly bring their full selves to the work and thrive and prosper, truly bring themselves to the neighborhood and truly thrive and prosper and feel just as included and safe and valued, and then we get equity, right? Where the outcomes actually show up there and we can measure it and see the results, but it takes every one of us in wherever and however we show up. So beautiful, Tawana. Wow, thank you yeah. for sharing. Thank Absolutely. you for sharing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both. Yes. And Tawana, you'll have to come on my show at WCCO Radio and talk about these things because- Absolutely. Um, thank you, Tawana Black, the creator, the founder, the CEO, of the Center for Economic Inclusion. Tawana, really uh, fabulous podcast today. I've learned so much. I have to go re-listen to the whole thing. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so very much, Jordana and Kate. This has been amazing. Yeah, thanks so much, Tawana. Thanks, Tawana. Kate, wow, right? I know you were taking notes. Like You couldn't have written all that down. No, and you know, I think I'm gonna have to listen to the podcast a few more times myself, just to, it's just very um, thoughtful and motivating, you know? Yes, so motivating. She's doing incredible, incredible work. Well, Kate, thank you. Always fun. You and I will do this again next month. And thank you for listening to See Speak Minnesota, the language of executives brought to you by PNC Bank and WCCO Radio. I'm Jordana Green for Kate Kelly. We'll see you next month.